The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this evening. The title of our sermon is, Do Not Submit. Now, every true minister of the gospel has one primary objective in life. To preach Christ and Him crucified. And to make known the glorious riches of God in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, while every man has sinful inclinations to deal with, And while preachers must keep a close watch on their hearts as to not be taken over by pride and a sense of self-importance, if a man is truly committed to his calling to preach the gospel, his heart will be fixed on helping others to see more of Christ and less of him. A gospel minister must see himself as nothing greater than a servant and no more important to the body of Christ than any other Christian. I'm reminded of John Calvin, who, unlike many of his contemporaries, rather than being buried at the church where he preached, he was carried outside the city wall to to a marshy burial ground that was reserved for commoners. And with close friends and attendants, Calvin's body was wrapped in a simple shroud. It was enclosed in a rough casket, and it was lowered into the earth. And Calvin's friend and successor, Theodore Beza, wrote that Calvin's plot was unlisted and as he had commanded without any gravestone. Now we must acknowledge the truth of what John Brown of Edinburgh writes. That, quote, ministers of the gospel may be placed in circumstances in which duty absolutely requires them to speak a great deal more of themselves than they are disposed to do. The success of a minister's labors depends in great degree on the confidence which those to whom he ministers have in the accuracy of his information and the integrity of his character. Aware of this, no art has been more frequently employed by the enemies of Christianity, whether secret or open, to arrest its progress than to attempt to blast the reputation of its teachers. In such cases, it becomes the imperious duty, not so much to themselves as to their master and to his cause, to come forward to defend themselves, to expose the falsehood and malignity of the calumniators, and to turn aside to blows, which though directed immediately at them, are ultimately aimed at Christianity and Christ. Now as we pick back up in our journey through Paul's letter to the Galatians, we find ourselves right in the middle of an argument that Paul really began back in verse 11 of chapter 1. And you'll recall that soon after Paul had left the churches that he had planted in Galatia, the false teaching Judaizers rolled into town and insisted that if the Galatians wanted to be true followers of Christ, they must submit themselves to circumcision. They must observe the Mosaic law in addition to having faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And their insistence was that the Galatians must first become Jews before they could be faithful Christians. 
And this was in complete contradiction to the gospel that Paul had received directly from Christ and that he had preached to the Galatians and that he continued to preach throughout his ministry to the Gentiles. The Judaizers wanted to shake the confidence of the Galatians. And one of the ways they did so was by questioning Paul's apostleship and Paul's authority. Now the context that we're going to be examining shows us that one of the claims that was being made about Paul was that he was preaching something different than all of the other apostles. And in fact, they were calling his apostleship into question altogether since he was not one of the original apostles. And so if he was to have any apostolic authority at all, it would have had to have been granted to him by the other apostles. That's what the Judaizers were saying. Now remember how Paul began the letter, and it will make more sense as to why he began this way as we move along this evening. In the very first verse, he wrote, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then in verse 12, he wrote, for I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as much as Paul wouldn't have wanted to, it was incumbent upon him to defend his apostleship, to make the strong assertion that his apostleship came from Christ himself and that the gospel he preached was the gospel given to him through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Quite simply, the Judaizers sought to undermine the influence of Paul in the midst of uh, the churches in Galatia and to seduce them from the simple truth of the gospel that Paul had preached. And so now he's on a mission to rescue the Galatians from the brink of spiritual disaster. And in order to do so, he has the unfortunate task of having to defend himself. So let's read together beginning in verse one of chapter two. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, 
they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now the Apostle Paul is demonstrating both his unity with the other apostles and the priority of the truth of the gospel. And the first thing we're going to see is that gospel purity is essential to Christian orthodoxy and it is the mark of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in two places in verses 1 and 2 and then again in verses 6 through 9. Now, the second part of chapter one was Paul telling the Galatians, listen, I am, I am not just a guy who decided to change my entire identity or worldview on a whim one day. I am not a Johnny come lately among the apostles. They knew who Paul was, and if they didn't, it wouldn't have been difficult for them to find out. So if they would take the time to work it out, they would realize that Paul was not some self-appointed apostle who was preaching contrary to what the Lord himself delivered. His case was pl- uh, clearly presented. I didn't learn this from anyone other than Christ himself. And I stand on equal footing before Christ with Peter, with James, with John, and with all the others. But what do we see now? Now we see him saying, nevertheless, if you want to know, I did the work, I made the journey, I had the conversations to make sure that what I'm preaching is consistent with what the other apostles are preaching. Now, when you read through Paul's letters, you begin to see just how masterful he is in his argumentation. He leaves no stone unturned. He leaves no question unanswered. If he, if he just left what he wrote in chapter one, the Judaizers would have still had a hook. They could say, well, we are representing the Jerusalem apostles. And they in Jerusalem are preaching something different than what Paul is preaching to you in Galatia. So he just squashes that line of reasoning. He's saying unambiguously, there is no disunity among the preaching of the apostles. We are all of one accord. So here in verses one and two, Paul gives us the simple details of his trip to Jerusalem when he went with whom he traveled, and the reason for his visit. And then in verses 6 through 9, he gives more of the details of the meeting itself, specifically narrowing in on how the other apostles agreed with him, and they agreed with what he was preaching, and what he was accomplishing in his ministry. And he shows through this meeting that it was legitimate and it was perfectly aligned with what the other apostles were preaching. And notice how he does this. Here's what his point is. After 14 years of preaching and planting churches, I finally went to see the other apostles and to talk to them about what I was preaching and to see what they were preaching, verifying that we were all preaching the same gospel. The other apostles didn't add anything to the gospel I was preaching. I am independent in my authority. It wasn't given to me by them. But in fact, they endorsed what I have been preaching and they confirmed that they are in agreement and that they are preaching the same thing. We don't have two different gospels. We have one and the same 
gospel. But what does Paul mean when he writes that he did this in order to make sure that I was not running or have not run in vain? It could be assumed that he means that he wanted to make sure that, he was, that what he was preaching was not wrong. But Paul had no fear, Paul had no concern that his preaching was contrary to the gospel that was delivered to him by Jesus. This was not to verify that his preaching was correct. Notice, he didn't go to Jerusalem by invitation or in some attempt to make sure he was correct. He went, it tells us right there in verse 2, by revelation. The Lord sent him to Jerusalem. So then how could his ministry have been in vain? It would have been in vain if the Judaizers were correct that the, the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching another gospel a gospel of Judaism plus Christ. This would mean that the apostles were all teaching different contradictory gospels from one another. And if that's the case, there is no foundation upon which the church can be built. So you see, Paul wasn't saying to them, I just want to check with you guys and make sure that I've got it right. No, Paul was saying to them, there are these guys, the Judaizers, that are saying that you're preaching something contrary to the one true gospel that I know is true and was delivered to me by Christ. And I want to make sure that I hear it directly from you that they are wrong like they are. He didn't, he didn't doubt the apostles. There's no reason to assume that. But true Christian unity in the most fundamental essence, is built upon the gospel. Look, we may have differences with other churches, with other Christians. We all have come to the conclusions we come to, and we are convinced by the scriptures. There are a lot of Christians that I disagree with on all sorts of things, and I'm always quick to point out that I only even agree with myself about 92% of the time. There are a lot of Christians that we may disagree with. My point is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is built around the gospel. We may be in different denominations. We may have different practices. There may be things that we think are completely wrong. But if we get the gospel right, we have every reason to affirm others as brothers and sisters in Christ. The gospel is essential, and it must be, without compromise. We cannot affirm those who distort the gospel, those who try to add to the gospel, those who outrightly deny the gospel, but when the gospel is right, when true gospel preaching is present, and when the people are depending on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, we can rejoice and find unity with them. That doesn't mean our differences don't matter. They definitely do. And the implications of some of those differences are very significant. But never let us get to a place where we think heaven is only populated by Reformed Baptists. As far as I can tell, we don't make up myriads upon myriads of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. But this is why this is so important to the Apostle Paul. If we get the gospel wrong, it's all in vain. 
And if the other apostles were preaching something contrary to what he was preaching, he was running in vain because the church could never be built on that foundation. There is no Christian unity without a pure, unadulterated gospel. And if you ever wonder if a church is orthodox and sound, the first thing you need to find out is what do they believe about the gospel? Now, of course, there are those who will say they believe the gospel, and many might even have a good articulation of the gospel, but preaching matters, and the implication of what is being preached will be evident. It will be evident as to whether or not their profession aligns with their practice. There's there's nothing to rejoice in that there are so many different ideas about all kinds of different doctrinal matters. I so desire that there weren't hundreds or thousands of denominations and disagreements among Christians. But doctrine matters. And our differences don't help but hurt us in many ways. Diversity of thought on doctrinal matters is not a virtue. However, we live in a fallen world. We have finite understanding and finite wisdom. So those disagreements are inevitable. And in glory, it will all be sorted out. And as I've said before, we'll look at our brothers and sisters. And if we're right and they were wrong, we can't say I told you so, but maybe we can just wink at them. But let's not be quick to cast off other believers because we have disagreements unless they strike at the heart of the gospel, which can look like many different things. Now notice also that Paul made special note that he brought Titus with him. It's an important piece to the puzzle. Why is that so significant? Well, he tells us in verse three that Titus was a Greek he was a Gentile and not a Jew, so he was, he was not circumcised, and yet he's a brother in Christ. Titus is Paul's example of a brother who had been freed from the bondage of sin and death, a brother who has laid hold of Christ apart from works of the law. And so, as we will see here in a few minutes, this was Paul putting a brother before the other apostles to say, Tell me, do you believe he needs to be circumcised? He was forcing the issue in real terms, not, not in theory, but bringing the man forward and saying, what, what do you say about this man? So Paul has a private meeting with Peter and James and John. He's laying out all that he was preaching, and he's saying, Titus here is a believer in Christ. He's a Greek. Do you believe he should be circumcised like the Judaizers are claiming you will say? If so, all of us are running in vain. So Paul goes on to highlight the unity of the apostles as it pertains to the gospel. We see it in verses six through nine. It, it may seem a bit obscured here, but in verse six, look again, Paul writes, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, I could see how you might read this to mean that perhaps Paul's saying the other apostles 
they're not that important or their opinions don't really matter or that he's just there to sort of go through the motions because he thinks he's better than them. So he doesn't care what they have to say. I could see how you might see that, but that's not his point. Paul is alluding to what he writes about elsewhere, namely that God does not base his acceptance of a person on the basis of externalities. This statement, God shows no partiality, is literally God does not accept a man's face. In other words, Paul's looking at the apostles and he's looking at their credentials and he's looking at their achievements and saying, it doesn't matter who they are or where they've come from or what they've accomplished or even that they've been recognized as apostles. None of that is the basis upon which they can be declared righteous before God. That's his point. God does not accept any man or woman on the basis of what we do. So when Paul writes, I went to Jerusalem, I told the other apostles my message, they listened, they agreed, and they added nothing. This isn't sort of a throwaway retelling of events that we should just read as a narrative statement. In some ways, this is actually one of the most significant things that Paul wrote in the entire letter to the Galatians. How so? Because within this statement, Paul is saying nothing about you or anyone else adds anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's highlighting the very thing that he's been writing all along. If you add anything to make you acceptable before God, you've believed another gospel, you've destroyed true freedom, and you've become a slave. And here's the main thing for us. I've talked about this before, but it's really important that we get it. All of us in here will hopefully have no problem rejecting the doctrinal legalism that the Judaizers were preaching. We are clear on the gospel being all of grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ apart from any work of the law whatsoever on our part. But practically, in everyday lives, in how we view ourselves and how we view others, We have a problem in that our hearts are naturally legally oriented. Our natural tendency is to add to the gospel. And and Paul's point is, I'm saying we cannot do that. And the Jerusalem apostles are saying the same exact thing. Faith in Christ, period. Anything else destroys the freedom that is ours in Christ. So whenever we're tempted to think, I really had a tough week spiritually, I need to do better so that God will continue to love and accept me. Or when you're tempted to look at another person and say, they don't do things the way that I do them, I wonder if they're saved. What are you doing? You're adding something. The chains have been broken in Christ, but you're saying, you know, I kind, of, I kind of think I need those chains. Those chains, they kind of help me stay in check. And the reality of it is that when you are free from those chains, when you know and, and truly believe that you are free from those chains of slavery, it's when, when you actually start doing the very thing that you would have previously thought you needed to do so that God would continue to love you. 
But God's love for you is not based on your performance or else all of us would be in trouble. You see, the paradox of the gospel is that the more you embrace your freedom in Christ, the more you will walk with a desire to fulfill all of your spiritual disciplines. Because you're not doing out of a fear. You're not doing it trembling, thinking that God is going to take you out at any moment. You're not doing it out of a sheer sense of pure white-knuckled duty. I hope you get that. When you perceive that God's love for you vacillates, he loves me, he loves me not. And everything you do is based on a mindset of trying to earn and to keep his acceptance. At some point, you're going to realize what you've known all along. I can never do enough. And the harder I try, the harder I fall. But when you know when you know that God's love for you is everlasting, that he is with you and keeping you and loving you the same today as he did the day he saved you and as, at, at the same he will 10 million years from now in eternity, your motivation completely changes. And now you have the freedom that your heart is actually longing for. So when you pick up your Bible to read, or when you sit down to pray, or when you come to church on Sunday, you aren't coming to all of this saying, I'm doing this because I have to, or else my Father in heaven will punish me. Instead, you're saying, I'm doing this because I want to, because my good Father knows what's good for me, and he has told me that it's good for me, and my own experience shows me that it's good for me. And I know that he loves me and I want to know him more. I want to be nearer to him. I want to have an even deeper love for him. I want to have sweeter communion with him. And he has freely given himself to me. So I want to take all I can get. The gospel says Jesus Christ lived as a perfect man fulfilling the entire law on your behalf and died in your place on the cross to take upon himself the full weight of the Father's wrath that you need not endure it. He died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, defeating sin and death forever. And as for you, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. You will be justified, you will be acquitted, you will be forgiven on the basis of your faith in Christ alone. On the other hand, the false gospel of the Judaizers says, yes, have faith in Christ. That is essential. But you also need to adhere to the ceremonial law of the old covenant. But what was the whole point of the ceremonial law? to show God's people that they were unable, that they were insufficient to fulfill what God required on their own. They needed a righteousness outside themselves in the same way we need a righteousness outside ourselves. They needed Christ just like we need Christ. So to insist on adhering to the ceremonial law in addition to the gospel is to say that Christ's all-satisfying work in the place of sinners isn't actually all-satisfying. 
This is what the apostles discussed. The gospel. The gospel of freedom from the bondage and slavery that was being laid on the Galatians and others by the Judaizers. And their response to Paul was, he tells us there in verse 9, to extend the right hand of fellowship that he and Barnabas should continue to preach the gospel to the Gentiles while they continued to preach that one and the same gospel to the Jews. They saw the grace of God in Paul's life. They saw the results of what he was doing. They acknowledged that he was commissioned and sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, entrusted with the gospel to preach to the Gentiles. And so they not only had no issues or concerns, they were delighted to encourage him in his labors. Now we can add to this in what we see in verses 3 through 5 that any attempt to add to the gospel only leads to slavery. You see, Paul continues to layer his argument. We've heard that already, but he shows us again. Look at verse three. But even Titus, who was with me, here he comes again, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, what is the point that Paul is making here? It's not really about Titus, is it? Paul's point is to put to death the claims of the Judaizers. Remember, they went from Jerusalem to Galatia. They insisted on circumcision for those who were believers in Christ. And they said, this is the position of the Jerusalem apostles. But what was the Jerusalem apostles' actual response to Titus? Paul writes, he was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And he presses his point even further, explaining they did not yield in submission to them for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, if Paul had submitted Titus to the demands of the false brothers, as he calls them, the gospel would have been destroyed. Does that seem dramatic? Does saying the gospel would have been destroyed seem like hyperbole or overkill to you? I'll say it again. Any requirement whatsoever that is added to the gospel causes us to rely on ourselves and our works and not in Christ's finished work alone by faith. That's the end of the gospel. There can be no gospel if it depends on us. Only slavery. That's the heart of these verses. That we, that's the heart of Galatians, the whole entire letter. We are free in Christ. And to add any other requirement is slavery. Now Paul is exposing the Judaizers as frauds and now we learn as liars. Because they're saying this is what the Jerusalem apostles are preaching and he verifies with them this is in fact not what they're preaching. You're all liars. It's interesting how he refers to them here. He calls them false brothers. Now his point is not that they are mistaken or confused brothers in Christ. He's saying that they are tares among the wheat. 
They are not brothers at all. And what is at stake is in their, in their slavish demands is the truth of the gospel itself. They may have come from Jerusalem, but what is clear from the response of the Jerusalem apostles, especially to the situation regarding Titus, is that they did not represent or speak for the apostles at all. So it's a warning from Paul. He's saying to them, if the truth of the gospel goes, your freedom is gone. If the truth goes, the freedom, the power, the love, the liberation, all gone. Now there's another warning here too. He, notice he writes that these false brothers were secretly brought in, that they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. He's warning us. There will be those in your midst who will try to distort the gospel. And while what the Judaizers were doing was very intentional, this often happens very unintentionally. Even with men who presume they are preaching the gospel. There are men who would never say it, nor would they believe it's true of them, but in reality, they're actually unconvinced of the grace of God and that it is sufficient and that the Holy Spirit is powerful. And so you can hear often in their preaching that they drift into enslaving authoritarian tendencies. That is, they abuse their pastoral authority. So what happens is that sometimes pastors will speak with binding authority in the lives of God's people in ways that God himself has not bound his people. In other words, God has not clearly said in his word that a person should or shouldn't do a particular thing, but the pastor and elders seek to hold God's people to those things anyway. Now surely, if there is a clear directive from the Lord, every true minister of the gospel should proclaim with boldness and conviction, thus saith the Lord. However, no pastor... No elder has warrant from Christ to speak with binding authority on matters in which the word of God is silent. So plainly stated, pastors and elders do not have the authority to claim for anyone what the will of God for their lives is unless it is articulated in the Bible. No pastor has the authority given from God to bind the consciences on matters like your choice of lawful employment or where you will live, or what school you will attend, or whether or not you go to college, or the person you will marry, so long as you're equally yoked with them, and on and on and on. In other words, unless your pastor is to become a surrogate deity for you, there's no way to do these things in a way that doesn't bind the consciences of God's people to obligations and, and to enslave them to the wills and whims of men instead of allowing them to walk freely by the grace of Christ in the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So in churches where this is often the case, the entire congregation in time is absolutely paralyzed when it comes to making decisions in their everyday lives. The constant refrain from them that you will hear is, I need to find out what pastor will say. What does my pastor think? Brothers and sisters, this is not the freedom afforded to you in the gospel. It's an enslaving, deadly distortion of the gospel that is a, that's founded upon law and works righteousness and not the gospel at all. The Puritan Samuel Bolton wrote in his book, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom. 
Christian freedom is a real freedom, not an imaginary or fancied freedom. Too many imagine themselves to be free who are really in bondage. But this is no imaginary freedom. It is a freedom indeed, a true and real freedom. Whom the Son makes free are free indeed. In other words, Christian liberty is real. We have real liberties, not just hypothetical, not just supposed liberties that can never actually be enjoyed or realized. So may God be pleased to help us to reject all forms of false teaching and binding authoritarianism that seeks to keep us from walking in our true freedoms that are granted to us in Jesus Christ. These things will be around us. These things are inescapable in this world. However, God has given us his word. And we must therefore compare all that we hear to God's word to truly understand and to truly determine if it is truly a word from God or if it is the word of a false brother or if it is the word of an authoritarian shepherd who's, in, who's seeking to enslave the people that Christ has set free. We must, as Paul says, not submit to any such teaching even for a moment, he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Not even for a moment. Last thing we see, verse 10, true gospel preaching leads to, a, to genuine good works. Look at that Last statement in verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the only thing they asked of Paul. Now we know historically, and from reading the book of Acts, that there was a significant famine in the churches. And all of the churches were asked to help provide for the relief amongst the poor believers in Judea. Now remember, Paul took up a significant collection and he urged the the wealthy Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to support their brethren who were suffering. And, And Paul writes that the apostles asked him to remember the work, which Paul says, I was eager to do that anyway. I was going to do that anyway. Why is he eager to do it? I think two reasons. First, this is what the gospel does to us. Right, We experience the free and liberating truth of the gospel and we embrace the whole Christ as our all and all and we are humbled by that. The more we commune with God, the more we are brought low in our own eyes, the more we are brought low in our lives, the more that happens, the more we operate from a place of generosity and compassion for others. We realize we've been given much, And so there is much that we want to give. We have been blessed beyond measure. And so we want to bless others. We have been shown tremendous love. And so we want to love others tremendously. Christ changed us. And when, and and what, what we once had no concern for whatsoever, we are now eager to do as God's people. But secondly, I think Paul was eager to do this because when the Galatian churches provided for the relief of the church in Judea, 
They were demonstrating their solidarity with the Jewish believers. They were showing that they were part, that they were part of one and the same Christian church. And it is unity of this kind that alone enables us to be partners in the gospel today. Like Paul and his brother apostles, we must be one in the fundamentals of the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Where such unity is absent, we cannot cooperate. We cannot stand shoulder to shoulder with men or organizations or churches that are in error regarding what the gospel basically is. We cannot support them financially or join with them in their efforts at outreach or pray for their successes or in the interests of presenting a united front to the world, cover over our differences with a form of words that gives an erroneous impression that we are really one. But where there is unity in the gospel, partnership is not only possible, it's altogether desirable. It enables Christians of different denominations to cooperate in home and foreign missions, in Bible translation and distribution, in the publication of Christian literature, in the training of men for the ministry, in the establishment of Christian schools, and in the preaching of the gospel to the nations. There are secondary issues on which we will differ, but in regard to the heart of the gospel, we are one. Brothers and sisters, we have been set free in Christ. And so may it be that we and all of our brothers and sisters across the world will never allow anyone to come in and take that freedom from us. May we live freely in Christ now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel that has transformed us, that has made us to be new creations, and that has set us free from the bondage, from the chains, from the slavery of works righteousness. We thank you that in Christ we have true freedom, that we are free indeed. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to walk in that freedom, to not continue to look back like the Israelites looked to Egypt, longing for the days of works righteousness, longing for the days of seeking to fulfill something that we knew and know even now that we cannot fulfill. Help us to look to Christ and every time we are tempted to earn from you what has already been given to us in Christ. Humble us again, O God. Remind us again of the true freedom that is ours in Christ. May we embrace it, may we love it, may we cherish it, and may we never even for a moment allow anyone to seek to try and take it from us. And Lord, in that, may you be glorified as our lives produce abundant fruit for your kingdom's sake. And we pray you do all of this for your glory in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online 
at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.